Welcome to the Twisted Mirror. Today, the show has another first. As part of the $10 Patreon tier, patrons have the chance to be chosen to read an episode intro. Today is the show's first guest introer, Chelsea Carroll. You too can support the show via Patreon. You'll get bonus episodes, early episodes, multi-parters all at once, and more. Tiers start as low as $3 a month. If subscriptions aren't your thing, you can also submit a one-time donation at twistedmirrorpodcast.com. Twisted Mirror is completely independent. I write, edit, and narrate the shows, so your support goes a long way. Speaking of support, would you do me a favor and rate and review the show? It doesn't have to be anything fancy, but just hitting that five-star button or telling others why you love the show helps Twisted Mirror grow. If you want to stay in the loop between episodes, you can find me on TikTok, IG, and Facebook. Just search for Twisted Mirror. You can also find links to socials at twistedmirrorpodcast.com, where you can find merch as well. All right, let's let Chelsea take our hand and guide us away from the mirror. We don't always have to gaze into another world to find mysterious horrors. Sometimes, they show up right in your mailbox. You are now staring into a twisted mirror. Receiving a package in the mail can be a real delight. Maybe it's a long-coveted item that you finally purchased. For days, you have anxiously checked your tracking info in anticipation of its glorious arrival. Or even better, a surprise gift or care package shows up at your door. It can bring you back to the rush of opening a birthday or holiday gift as a child. That's a feeling that gets harder to come by as an adult. We're so busy trying to survive and provide, and there's no Santa to write to with an endless list of wants. Even when gifts do come our way, necessity often takes precedence over luxuries. So when a nicely wrapped package, one you didn't expect, arrives in the mail, you are once again filled with that curiosity and wonder. As you guess who the sender could be, you rip open the outer packaging, your heart pumping just a little bit faster than it was before. Life can be so monotonous, and this little surprise package, well, it's a thrill a deviation from the mundane. But there are people out there who prey on this very human desire. They use it to trick us into a false sense of security, and instead of delivering a gift, they deliver destruction. This is true horror. Delivery. It was Friday, May 7th, 1982. Joan Kipp of Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, was looking forward to a lovely Mother's Day weekend at her family's summer home in Hayward, Connecticut. Excited for the weekend, she left work for her primary family home at about 4 p.m., a little bit earlier than usual. Howard, her husband, was also home, tending to the usual pre-trip preparations. Shortly after her arrival, Joan began to sort through her mail, which had arrived around noon that same day. In the pile was a package addressed to her. She opened it to find a gift. The Quick and Delicious Gourmet Cookbook 
from Sears. With Mother's Day just around the corner, it was natural to assume this was a gift. Mrs. Kipp was popular in her community. She worked for the Board of Education, supervising guidance counselors. She volunteered for the South Beach Psychiatric Center, and she was treasurer of the Bay Ridge Community Council, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the neighborhood. She was a shoo-in to become the organization's vice president in an upcoming election. Joan and Howard had raised two children together, now adults. They were a tight-knit family with her son Craig, living just around the corner. Joan likely wondered who was behind the kind gesture as she cracked open the cover of her new gift. Then, there was a sudden explosion. Howard, who was outside on the house's driveway when the chaos erupted, ran inside to find his wife with severe wounds to her face, chest, and hands. Still conscious, she said to him, Look what they did to me. As she waited for help, she lay on the couch and uttered some final cryptic words to him. There may be others. Joan was taken to Lutheran Hospital, where she died a few hours later on the operating table. In the wake of Joan's death, there was a stunning mystery. Of course, the book wasn't a gift. And while there was a combustion reaction causing an explosive sound, it wasn't technically a bomb. What investigators discovered was that the book was hollowed out, and in it was a homemade gun. This contraption was referred to as a zip gun, which is technically a misnomer. A zip gun, a style of handmade gun that was used by gang members in the 1950s and 60s, is typically powered by a spring or a rubber band. This one used the filament of an incandescent light bulb to directly heat the gunpowder of three 22 caliber bullets placed in three separate stainless steel tubes. The bullets' bases had been removed so that the gunpowder would make direct contact with the filaments. The battery-powered device was placed inside the hollowed-out space and designed to switch on upon opening. The three tubes made of brake-line tubing were positioned for peak damage, aiming for the recipient's chest or higher. This was a deliberate and targeted attack, one designed to inflict mortal wounds and maximum carnage. The gun's barrels were not only aimed at the person opening the book, but a potential bystander, with two barrels pointed one way and one barrel facing the other way, according to an investigator. As a result, Two bullets hit Joan's chest, and one struck one of the walls in her kitchen. Joan's family and police were baffled. Joan was a well-liked pillar of the community. She had spent her career and free time helping others. Any time outside of those obligations, she spent focused on her family. Joan was not your typical target for a hit. The police were left with few leads except for a note written in block letters left inside of the cookbook that reportedly said, Joan, you're dead. Howard, Craig, and Doreen will be next. With Joan's name being crossed out, 
So they started where most investigators do when there isn't a clear perp. They looked at her husband. Howard was open with the investigators at first, handing over materials such as her diary and allowing the police to search his marine engineering business. In fact, he handed over the keys without so much as asking for a warrant. But the family would soon close the direct line of communication when the police picked up their daughter, Doreen, and interrogated her for hours just before her mother's funeral. At that point, the family decided to obtain legal representation to protect themselves from the zealous and perhaps desperate investigators. Unable to link Howard to the attack, detectives turned their focus onto Craig, the couple's son. The police believed he had the ability to build such a contraption. He worked for his dad's company installing electrical lines into ship boiler rooms. The motive? He was fired from that very job. Investigators also matched his handwriting to the note found in the cookbook, and a nine-year-old German shepherd trained in identifying human scents matched Craig's scent to the bomb. And while there is nothing wrong with doing so, in fact, many would argue it's the prudent thing to do, Craig refused a polygraph, cementing his guilt in the mind of the investigators. They told the press that his relationship with his mother was one of, quote-unquote, hatred and bitterness, and alleged that he had a history of using marijuana and cocaine. Just three months after her death, Craig Kipp was charged with mailing injurious articles and was expected to also be charged with her murder. Well, that solves it. Case closed, right? Not so fast. Those closest to Joan and Craig claimed that couldn't be further from the truth. Howard called the allegations absurd. There weren't any secrets, Howard stated to the Daily News. I didn't kill Joan Kipp, and I'm positive my son didn't either. He vehemently argued that his son loved his mother, that when he traveled for work, Craig, who lived down the street from his parents, always looked out for his mother and his sister. Just a week before her death, Joan had tripped outside and Craig rushed over to bandage her leg and cook dinner. And it wasn't just Howard who felt this way. Doreen supported her brother fully, and a neighbor, Angela Passara went on the record to say that she had never seen or witnessed any sort of animus between the two, stating that Craig lived with his parents right up until he got married. They were an ordinary family with occasional bickering, but there was no hatred or animus, Howard insisted. Craig, 27 at the time of his mother's murder, was struggling to find his footing like so many people at that age trying to establish a career and start a family. Howard admitted that Craig had some troubles as an adolescent, but nothing out of the ordinary, just a young boy testing his boundaries. He believed when police spoke to friends and associates about Craig, they took those mundane observations way out of context and painted him as a killer, as a spiteful, recently fired junkie son who hoped the gun would kill both of his parents at once so he could get them out of the way and profit somehow, solving all his problems with the turn of a cookbook cover. Howard had an answer for that so-called firing, the main motive offered by detectives. It was a joint decision. 
The job at his father's business required him to regularly be away from his wife on isolated ships with no means of communication. And he simply did not have the natural aptitude for mechanical work. Craig also suffered some ailments that interfered with the demands of such a physical job. The handwriting analysis? Well, experts determine block letters such as the ones used in the note cannot be analyzed to any degree of certainty. As far as the marijuana and cocaine use, Howard claimed to only know about the marijuana. Besides, come on, it was the early 80s in New York City. Who didn't try a little sniffy-sniff at a party back then? He may not have been an altar boy, but to imply enjoying recreational drugs was enough to link him to his mother's murder was a stretch. The credibility of the dog handler also came into question as the charges proceeded. The assistant district attorney said the evidence produced by the dog, quote-unquote, could not be relied upon because it did not meet, quote-unquote, accepted standards of scientific testing. It seems the state agreed the evidence was insufficient as they dropped the charges due to lack of evidence. A dog's word and some block letters wouldn't be enough. The ADA even admitted that the witnesses they used to establish a motive, upon further investigation, confirmed that Craig and Joan had a normal relationship. Once the charges were dropped, it seemed everyone was back at square one. Who would target such a beloved guidance counselor, community leader, wife, and mother? Joan's final words remained a mystery. Maybe she had time to glance at the note before the gun fired and with her final moments of consciousness, wanted to warn her family there might be more packages. I can't find information on how long the device would have taken to trigger, but it only takes a second to read a sentence or two. Her husband claimed that while she was still conscious, she instructed him to warn her colleagues at the high school. Her public-facing job may have led her to believe her colleagues might also be in danger, but not that she knew specifically who targeted her or why. It speaks to Joan's character that while she lay bleeding to death, her final words were of concern for the safety of others. And so, while remaining open, her case sat on the back burner with little movement. Despite the note and Joan's warnings, no one else received the zip gun package. That is, until 11 years later. On October 15, 1993, Anthony Lenza, a retired sanitation worker from Staten Island, was vacationing with his wife in Poconos, Pennsylvania, a popular getaway spot for New Yorkers. Their adult children came to visit and brought his mail from his New York house to his location at the Poconos. Anthony received a box, lined with blue velvet, like those used to hold collectible coins or medallions. Upon opening it, three shots fired from the box, injuring Lenza and two family members, his wife Connie and his 11-year-old granddaughter Liza. Fortunately, no one was killed. Investigators would soon link the device found in the box to the one that killed Joan 11 years prior. 
when it comes to explosives and incendiary devices, the perpetrator often leaves a signature in the materials they use or method of assembly. Investigators will use these stylistic signatures to link disparate cases together. In the case of the Lenza bombing, the bomber used the same battery-powered contraption that sent projectiles in multiple directions, seemingly designed to injure as many people as possible in the vicinity of the package. They used an attractive enclosure, something that could be flipped open to trigger the device. In Jones' case, a cookbook. In Anthony Lenza's, a medallion box. The new attack removed most of the suspicion from Craig Kipp, who had since left the New York metropolitan area since charges against him were dropped. While this may have given some measure of relief to the Kipp family, investigators now found themselves right back where they started. Lenza, like Joan, had no known enemies. He led a relatively quiet life before and after retirement. He was a family man. Why would anyone want to not only harm him, but indiscriminately harm those around him? The long stretch of time between the attacks and seeming randomness of it all left those working on the case with little to go on. They could only hope this would be the end of it while they worked to solve the cases. On April 5th, 1994, Less than six months after the Lenza package was delivered, Alice Caswell, a 75-year-old resident of Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, received a package addressed to Richard McGarrell, her younger brother and a retired U.S. Customs Service inspector, who had moved out of the residence 15 years earlier. The envelope was delivered via a mail slot in her door at around 1.20 p.m. by a postal service worker. In her kitchen, she opened the package to find what was described as a velvet box. Details are scant, but I presume one similar to the Lenza package, lined for jewelry or collectibles. Upon opening it, two 22 caliber bullets were fired into her abdomen, critically wounding her. Clenching her stomach, Caswell managed to stagger out of her home and reach a neighbor who called for help. She survived the attack. The frequency between bombings had escalated, and there was no telling when someone else would receive another package, wrapped in brown paper, holding what looked like a gift inside, but designed to deliver devastation. The 1990s were a time in U.S. history that saw multiple highly publicized bombings, I remember my introduction to this type of violence in the fourth grade. I had just arrived home from school and turned on the TV to procrastinate on homework and watch some cartoons. Strangely, my usual after-school TV channel delivered static. Frustrated, I clicked from one channel to the next, finding snow on every station until I arrived at CBS. I learned as I watched the shocked, soot-covered faces of people staggering from the smoky facade of the North Tower of the World Trade Center that CBS was the only local network that did not have their broadcast signals delivering from the building, instead using their backup transmitter at the Empire State Building. 
Just a couple of years later, the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma was bombed in the largest act of domestic terrorism on U.S. soil, destroying a third of the building and in the process killing 168 people and injuring 680 others. In 1996, Ted Kaczynski, who had only been known as the Unabomber until his capture, murdered three and injured 23 others in an extended mail bombing campaign from 1978 to 1995. During the very time the zip gun package made its return after an 11-year hiatus, a young man in upstate New York had received a suspicious package. His father recognized the Fort Collins return address from the news where there had been a recent package bomb explosion. They alerted the authorities and discovered the package was, in fact, a bomb. The device was safely detonated, and it was discovered not to be related to packages that killed Joan Kipp and injured several others. It just so happened that two men, Michael Stevens and Earl Figley, had conspired to send bombs to five different locations along upstate New York in a revenge plot against Stevens' ex-wife, Brenda Lazor, targeting her family. The 1990s saw the rise in popularity of the anarchist cookbook. Though it was first published in 1971, it had proliferated with the advent of the internet, spreading via Usenet and FTP servers. As media caught on to its popularity, a Barbara Streisand effect may have taken place where the negative publicity of the book fostered even more curiosity, making an obscure book for those on the political and societal fringes a mainstream phenomenon. The book was written by 19-year-old William Powell as a form of protest to the Vietnam War. He researched texts such as the U.S. Combat Bookshelf, the Boy Scout Handbook, and Fuck the System by Abby Hoffman at the New York Public Library. At the time, the protests about Vietnam had reached a fever pitch and the sentiment had gained in popularity that peaceful protests would not be enough against a powerful government that used force against its citizens. Powell said, The central idea to the book was that violence is an acceptable means to bring about political change. While his intention was to bring power to the everyman by giving them the tools to fight the forces of fascism, capitalism, and communist threats, what he did was create a seminal text for those interested in brewing deadly weaponry, regardless of their targets or intention. While he came to renounce the book later and even tried to get it removed from publication, his efforts were unsuccessful. With easy and anonymous access to such a work available, anyone with an internet connection and mechanical aptitude could learn to make package bombs so that a white supremacist or angry ex could put together a deadly bomb without signaling suspicion until it was too late. But even with that kind of text available to anyone, investigators believe that the builder of these packages, dubbed the Zip Gun Bomber, was a bit more sophisticated than just any average Joe. Making any sort of explosive or incendiary device is risky, People blow off their fingers in the U.S. every 4th of July with perfectly packaged fireworks covered in warning labels and despite the countless public warnings that come around that time of year. A slip-up while building a gun or bomb 
can cause you to blow yourself up or send a projectile flying into a neighbor's home, getting yourself a visit from the police or FBI, and a nice, long prison sentence. But not only were these packages successfully assembled, delivered, and triggered, but the setup itself was inventive and not before seen in these types of attacks. The person wasn't just capable of following a recipe. They had made one of their own. On June 26, 1995, a St. Albans, Queens resident, pregnant 19-year-old Stephanie Gaffney, received a package wrapped in brown paper addressed to Gilmore or occupant. Gilmore was the name of her father and grandfather, both former police detectives. Like the others, the package was designed to be attractive and disarming. This one advertised itself as a managed care health plan. With the package sitting on her lap, she opened it and triggered the device. Gaffney suffered burns to her abdomen, legs, and chest. The injury sent her unborn child into distress, and she was rushed to Jamaica Hospital, where she went into labor and miraculously delivered a healthy baby girl. Gaffney stated on Unsolved Mysteries that she believes the reason they survived the blasts was because she opened the package at an awkward angle. With the Unabomber still on the loose and getting heavy press coverage, he had to be eliminated with each new attack, and he was in this case. It quickly became apparent as investigators identified the signatures in the delivery, packaging, and assembly of the device that this was the fourth attack of the zip gun bomber. Police Commissioner William J. Bratton was open to media outlets. The concern here is that we have four events over a very long period of time that have very striking similarities, Mr. Bratton said. As to the motive, we don't know. As to how the four victims or the locations were picked, we don't know. They had no idea who was making these packages or why. Usually with these types of serial attacks, there is a connection between the victims. When Ted Kaczynski wrote his manifesto, it was clear he was a true Luddite. He believed the advancement of technology was the scourge of humanity, and he targeted those whom he believed recklessly advanced it in some way. In fact, his very sobriquet, Unabomber, came from the FBI case identifier, Unabom, University and Airline Bomber. Having a motive of some sorts, however deranged it may be, can help narrow down where to look, who to talk to. It can narrow down a needle in a barn to at least certain haystacks. But there was no clear connection between the victims, and in some cases, it wasn't 100% clear who the exact target even was. In Joan's case, she had a package and a note directly addressed to her. In Stephanie Gaffney's case, the sender seemed content for anyone at the residence, even a pregnant teenager, to open the package. The Unabomber engaged with police and media. He wanted to send a message. Any contact, any window into who an attacker might be, can allow for a break in an investigation like this. In the case of the Unabomber, 
a simple saying many of us have heard countless times before, but said with an unexpected twist, broke the case. You can eat your cake and have it too. Just as an aside, I'm with Ted on this one. The way it is commonly said never made sense to me, and that's because the original version is how Ted said it. Over the years, the saying flipped. Of course, you can have your cake and eat it. How else could you eat it if you didn't have it? If you eat it first, then it's gone and you can't have it. But I digress. Unlike Kaczynski, the Zipgum bombers seemed content to watch from afar, to relish in their brutality from a distance. Perhaps they chose people at random, or there was a connection between victims only easily distinguishable to their warped mind. Any theories on a connection between victims, such as the culprit going after people in public service or government, just seemed thin. And even if that was the connection, it was still too broad to make a substantial break in the case. For what it's worth, Howard Kipp believed Jones' attack was a prank gone wrong. Ah yes, the classic shoot-you-in-the-chest gag. I can't imagine anyone crafting a gun with live rounds as a prank, but it may have been hard for Howard to fathom any other reason as to why someone would send such a package to Joan. Howard had been quoted saying that before the subsequent attack 11 years later. It's possible he has changed his opinion since then. Stephanie Gaffney, the pregnant victim, believed that the attacks were completely random, just plain terrible luck of the draw. Other than their signature style of device, packaging, and the cluster of victims being in New York City, there was little to flesh out a story or profile behind these serial attacks. The zip gun bomber was not a person who had a message to deliver. They did not need a pulpit. They did not have that weak spot that so many other serial killers and attackers do. A desire for recognition. To be heard. They are a criminal who is baffling. One who does not target for any coherent reason. One who is cunning. Patient. Capable. Content to lurk in the shadows. One who perhaps even enjoyed silently watching authorities toil. Perhaps their only motive was to get away with something big. To throw up a middle finger to the world just because they could. The very anonymity of it all could have been the point. On June 20th, 1996, postal worker Ken Barris delivered a package to the two-story stucco home of Marietta and Richard Basile in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. The return address stated it was from the March of Dimes. It is unclear if the Basiles had a direct connection to the organization. Though the package was addressed to Marietta, Richard opened it. Inside, he found a video cassette box. As postal worker Barris continued his mail route, he heard a blast and Basile yelling that the box had blown up. I went into the house and smelled gunpowder and seen broken windows and glass, Barris said. Luckily for the Basiles, Richard, like Stephanie Gaffney, had opened the box awkwardly. 
Some of those hardier VHS boxes could be difficult to crack open, and you'd sometimes angle the box oddly for leverage as you pried open the flap. Presumably, with the opening facing away from his body, the projectiles firing in opposite directions, always designed to hit the recipient and the people across them, missed him entirely and shattered their kitchen window. The package and its contents had all the markings of the Zipgun Bomber, or Zipgun Man, as some articles called him. A disarming sender address. An irresistible offer or box inside designed to pique curiosity. And a battery-powered gun-like device that would fire 22 caliber bullets in multiple directions, using brake-line tubing in place of conventional barrels. There was speculation that this attack may have been triggered by jealousy, as Kaczynski had been indicted earlier in the week, and another high-profile arrest of a violent New York City serial murderer and attacker filled the headlines. Based on their lack of personal attention-seeking, I think it's possible the Zipgun Bomber enjoyed knocking down law enforcement a peg or two after some high-profile wins and reveled in frustrating authorities more of another middle finger than seeking recognition. Police were no closer to catching the Zipgun bomber than they were 14 years earlier, when they killed Joan Kipp. Since the initial 11-year hiatus, the Zipgun bomber had resurfaced four times, nearly once a year, to send an unwitting person a package from hell. There have been almost no good leads. While the police have never officially ruled out Craig as a suspect, it would be hard to argue that he decided that the best way to cover up his initial crime would be to reignite the investigation over a decade later by sending new packages to a bunch of strangers, especially after already having charges against him dropped. There was one suspect, however, who did have some connections to one of the victims and an unusual amount of physical evidence linking him to the type of device built by the Zipgun bomber. Steve Wavra, a Navy veteran who served from 1972 to 1973 and was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Many of his adult years were spent behind bars, and his crimes were eyebrow-raising. Criminal possession of noxious liquids, bomb-making threats and an assault on a military police officer. In 1983, a year after Joan's murder, police found a hollowed-out book and other bomb-making paraphernalia on the kitchen table of an apartment he shared with an ex-con roommate. Wavra claimed his roommate had no idea what the intended purpose of the bomb was, which he claimed was not for mail use, but instead to be brought to a U.S. military base. Bonus points for honesty, I guess. In 1995, he was caught in a Brooklyn public library with a hollowed-out book filled with exacto blades and four 22 caliber rifle shells. He had also sent a 250-page rambling manifesto to federal courthouses. But the links didn't just stop at the bomb-making materials. It turns out Steve Wavra had a connection to Joan Kipp, the first victim. Joan Kipp was a guidance counselor at Diker Heights High School, where he was held back twice. Could this have been some vendetta? Wavra claims that he had nothing against her. 
There's only one minor issue with Steve being the assailant. He was in prison at the time of Joan's attack. But police were still suspicious, claiming that he could have mailed the contents of the bomb to his unnamed friend, who then assembled and mailed the bomb. What a pal. It seems like a big leap to think this man really had it out for his guidance counselor enough to develop a unique method of delivering and triggering a deadly weapon, all while orchestrating the whole thing from prison. Besides, Joan directed other guidance counselors in her role who had far more contact with students than she had, but investigators felt there were too many pieces of evidence pointing to him. One of the investigators said, There was always a common denominator between them and the victims, whether it was the pharmacy, the neighborhood, the hollowed-out cookbook. He also added that there was a record of Wavre's unnamed roommate in the computer of each of the victims' local pharmacy, but they could never figure out why. Steve obviously had a problem with the military, and perhaps by extension, anyone who worked in civil service. But the occupations of the victims spanned from guidance counselor to customs agent to sanitation worker. The link seemed tenuous. But perhaps his ailing mind saw connections that aren't so clear to the average brain. Most sufferers of schizophrenia do not seek to harm others and are in fact at a higher risk themselves to be victims of violence. However, in rare instances, their hallucinations and delusions can create entire narratives that may trigger violent behavior. There's also the possibility that the book sent to Joan was in fact orchestrated by Steve, people have killed for way less, and the others were a copycat explaining how the attack suddenly resumed after an 11-year hiatus. After all, the device that killed Joan was housed in a book, matching Steve's M.O., but many of the others were sent in medallion boxes, and in one case, a VHS tape box. Could it have been Steve's roommate deciding to do his own thing? Chances are the police looked into that possibility, but nothing has come of it. The coincidences lined up, do seem striking, and yet there are many gaps. Humans love patterns. Our brains seek them. They help us understand the world in which we exist. Have you ever seen those lists that connect a bunch of dates and strange coincidences between two historical figures? They seem eerie and sometimes even almost as if they are by design somehow, like part of some cosmic conspiracy. But chances are you can take any two random people and find a bunch of similarities that seem uncanny if you search hard enough. Maybe investigators could never figure out how Steve pulled off the packages because all these connections were simply a coincidence, a big red herring. Now, using the same type of unique housing for a bomb is definitely a much more substantial coincidence than, say, two people being born on the 17th of different months And sharing pharmacies with each victim is admittedly odd, but I can't think of how that would play out. It's not like Wavra's friend had access to the private computer databases of these pharmacies. What purpose would sharing pharmacies serve? Could it have been a folie à deux, a shared delusion between two friends whose irrational actions simply do not make sense to the rational mind? Wavra's pal 
didn't need to fill out his amoxicillin script at the same Walgreens as his victims to stalk them. Maybe the pharmacy accounts had absolutely nothing to do with the zip gun bombings, and he was doctor and pharmacy shopping and had accounts all over New York City. Did they latch on to Steve Wavra as their guy because of how desperate they were for any leads, especially when Kip's own son didn't pan out? Years later, Wavra went to prison for unrelated charges and was released in 2005. He claimed he would someday write a case story for the world to see his perspective. As far as I can tell, it never happened. I get it, Steve. It's not easy to write a book. One final suspicion investigators offered was that there was some sort of blackmail or extortion of the victims due to their reticence, claiming the victims acted as if they learned their lesson and wanted to move on. I find that highly unlikely. After seeing what happened to the Kips when they cooperated with the investigators, I can think of several reasons the victims would have wanted to move past the whole thing that didn't involve an extortion ring of random law-abiding New Yorkers. After the string of new bombings, 1997 came and went with no new deliveries, as did 1998, then 1999. The elusive device maker who had so mysteriously began a 14-year continued assault via mail delivery just as mysteriously stopped. It was as if they vanished into thin air, like the smoke from one of their packages. Experts suggest to never open a package you didn't expect or from a sender you don't recognize. But let's be for real. In this day and age, when we get practically everything delivered right to our front door, the novelty of a package isn't the same as it used to be. Dropshippers from all over the world send packages with unfamiliar sender addresses. Just like the Zipgun Bomber, who used brands like March of Dimes to gain credibility, someone can reuse an Amazon package and most people wouldn't think twice about tearing that box open, thinking it's their latest subscribe and save of wet wipes and dryer sheets or maybe a haul from a blacked-out ambient-fueled shopping spree. You just gotta hope some crazed lunatic hasn't singled out your address for a deadly delivery. It's hard to believe someone could terrorize people in one of the most famous cities in the world and never face justice, let alone be named. It has been over 40 years since Joan opened that hollowed-out cookbook, and the Zipgun Bomber has never been identified. They may be in prison for some other offense or dead, or they could be someone's unassuming elderly neighbor whose misdeeds from their younger years are now a fading memory. Hey all, I just wanted to add one final note that I had not been able to put at the beginning because I wasn't sure if it would be ready or not, but it should be. If it's not up by the time that this episode is live, it will be within the coming days. I was a guest on the podcast Watch If You Dare, and we are going to be discussing the movie The Killing of a Sacred Deer. 
So if that's something you're into, you want to hear my take on that movie and also some recommendations for other movies, go give that podcast a listen. Again, it's Watch If You Dare. We had a really fun time and the guys are awesome, super welcoming, and we really share a lot of insights. It was really fun to talk to fellow horror nerds who just love that stuff. And we went on for hours, literally. So <laughs> give that a listen. Again, it's Watch If You Dare. And if it's not up yet, it will be up within the next couple of days.